So we continue our series on Acts and the book of Acts uh, shows us the birth of the early church and it started in Jerusalem. We've seen the church grow in Jerusalem. We've seen the church grow from Jerusalem into the whole area that we would now call Israel today. And then we've seen it go to the ends of the earth, well, at least as they knew it uh, in those days. And uh, when the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, as the church goes to the ends of the earth in in Acts, the key player there is Paul. And uh, Luke presents it as these three missionary journeys Paul goes on. And we've we've kind of covered his first missionary journey that Paul did. And we're now in his second missionary journey. Okay. And the background to where we're going to pick things up in Acts 16 today is that uh, Paul has been uh, traveling around a number of different places, uh, Syria, Cilicia, Derby, Lystra, Phrygia, Galatia. And he's been sharing uh, news uh, with the churches, a lot of the churches that he himself uh, planted. But then having gone on from these guys, uh, he kind of hits this impasse. And uh, it says uh, rather mysteriously that he's kept by the Holy Spirit from traveling to Asia. And then he's kept by the Holy Spirit from entering Bithynia. It's like he wanted to go to these places and he feels like it's not the right thing to do. He feels God telling him that. And so he's thinking, what, where shall I go? Where am I, how am I supposed to proceed? But, but finally, Paul is given this dream of a man from Macedonia begging him for help. And so in Acts 16, verse 10, uh, it says, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them, they went to Macedonia. And so on to Philippi. Philippi is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, as it says in Acts 16, 12. And uh, he goes to this uh, leading city and things start really, really well. Okay, the first place he goes is to this river. And uh, I want you to imagine the scene. It it seems like a a very tranquil setting, this kind of river that's called a place of prayer. And there's this group of very well-to-do ladies who are by the river. And I can't help imagining this scene without a kind of picnic involved and probably cups of tea. You know, that, that's not in the in the Acts account, but it's that kind of scene. It's very tranquil, it's very peaceful, and not just does Paul, Paul get a nice picnic, or, or not as the case may be, but actually Lydia, one of the ladies, uh, hears what Paul says and chooses to follow Jesus. And actually, not just that, she gives Paul and the, 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 uh, the believers her house as something of a base for operations. Okay, so things have started really well in Philippi, but as always in Paul's adventures, trouble is just around the corner. Okay, let's pick it up in Acts 16, 16 to 18. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. And you just got to clear up one word in this passage uh, to help us to understand what's going on here. In verse uh, 18 in in the NIV, which is I'm reading from, uh, it says, finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, uh, get out of her. And uh, annoyed kind of gives us a certain picture here that Paul's just really annoyed with this pesky girl that's followed him around making a scene. And because he's like, right, that's it. I've had enough of you. And he kind of almost, he gets rid of the spirit. It's like gets rid of her magical power of fortune telling. It's just a mean act. That's not the case at all here. The the word annoyed uh, would be better translated kind of grieved or troubled or disturbed. Okay. And um, he he was grieved not by 
an annoyance at the girl, but actually by the whole situation. I'm sure it was a combination of her spiritual oppression and the way she'd been reduced by her owners to somewhere, I think between a, a kind of cash cow and a performing chimp, uh, really. And so what Paul does here is not an act of kind of uh, against the girl. It's an act very much for the girl. He, he steps in and he delivers her of the spirit that was troubling, troubling her. Now, just to hold my hands up here, yep, I am fully aware this is one of the weird bits in the Bible, okay? Just to say, I know it, a lot of you know it as I'm reading this, is the weird bit. She has a spirit by which she predicts the future. Uh, We don't often talk in those sort of ways today, but actually, the Bible does. And the Bible is clear that there are spiritual powers in existence that affect our lives, and in some cases, uh, there are bad powers that get such a foothold in people's lives that they have a decisive influence on them. And uh, it seems that Paul sees that here and he casts out this evil spirit. And very clearly uh, what we do know is whenever we see these evil spirits cast out in the Gospels or in Acts, uh, actually that's an act of kindness to someone, as, I, as I've said. And that's what Paul does for this girl. It's an act of kindness to her. So obviously, um, I'm sure for this act of kindness, he'll be paid back with hugs and kisses and a box of chocolates, won't he? Well, actually, not quite. Let's continue uh, the story in verse 19. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So how are Paul and Silas rewarded for their act of kindness? Well, by being put in prison. Nice. But actually, that's not all that happens here. Notice the dramatic change of tone in the passage. Just remember, I was talking about it a minute ago, just ten verses before, Paul's by the tranquil river, with the high society ladies, all very calm and peaceful, okay? Now look at the words Luke now uses to describe this change of mood. Seized, dragged, attack, stripped, beaten with rods, severely flogged, thrown. The, the imagery now is very, very violent. And it's important to see as well, everyone's involved here. The slave owners, the authorities and the crowd get in on it too. It's almost like Luke has suddenly lifted the lid of respectable Philippi and revealed what's going on under the surface. And it's really ugly. There's greed, there's violence, there's corruption. It all flares up in a moment. I wonder if in your life you can isolate moments like this. Moments when suddenly you've seen the lurking badness that's all around us. I remember when I was a student, and uh, we moved into our first student house. It was in a pretty notorious area of Birmingham uh, then. And being kind of a young, naive uh, 19-year-old, I thought nothing of it. If anything, it was kind of a badge of honour, you know, and moved up from Surrey to Birmingham. We were, we were truly urban now. We lived in this, uh, this sort of place. But then I remember my landlord uh, coming to talk to me after one holiday and, and say, do you know what happened while you were away? And uh, I said, no, not not aware at all. And he said, this is what happened. Two doors down from you, a lady lives uh, with her children. And uh, while you were away, she one day took her children into the house, sat them down in front of the telly, locked the front door, and set fire to her house. It's two doors down from us. 
suddenly a lid was lifted for me. It all became very real. It's like, really? No. What? Just down the road, that kind of thing doesn't happen to be near me. That's just not how it goes. A lid was lifted. It's actually not just certain parts of British society or certain areas that have this underbelly, though. We're hearing all the time on the news of people from all walks of life doing awful, selfish, destructive things. And and sometimes we we get a glimpse like the one Luke gives us here. Of course, for you, it might be much closer to home. Perhaps you're the victim of violence in a situation. It might be someone turning on you at work. It might be a neighbour suddenly making your life really difficult for no apparent reason. Or it could be much worse. It could be people very close to you treating you in ways that nobody should treat anyone. But whatever it is, there are times, I think, when we get that glimpse. And although it's just a snapshot, like in this passage, and in some ways you could say it's an isolated incident, it, when it happens, it makes us think, actually, underneath the surface, is there something actually wrong with the world? Paul definitely saw things like this. Later on, in uh, Romans chapter 131, uh, Paul sums up all humanity in this way. He gives, sums up humanity in four words. He says, what's humanity? Well, it's sense, we're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I want to be clear that this isn't the whole story. There's lots of great things about the world too. The, the Bible doesn't teach that all people are all bad all the time. Okay, I think there is a danger uh, for Christians to over-egg this kind of side of things and totally brush over genuine human nobility and goodness. Remember, the Bible says that we were made, all of us, all human beings, were made in God's image. And although that image is definitely somewhat shattered uh, through our own foolishness and pride, Well, to focus too thoroughly on human depravity, I wonder if it's actually doing a disservice to our creator. But neither of these perspectives trump the other, though. Both are true. Yes, the world is a wonderful place, but the world is also a wicked place. And while human beings are a fantastic, creative, beautiful species, we are also violent and selfish and what the Bible would call sinful. Now, the message of the Bible is that This verdict is true of all of us. And if the lid was lifted off any of our hearts, actually, the same would be true. We're all sinners. But the good news of the Bible is that there's hope for us. Jesus died on the cross to rescue us, to forgive us, and more than that, to change us. And that offer is open to anyone. If you're here today and you've never taken Jesus' offer to forgive you and change you, not just on the surface, not just give you a new club to go to or a new thing to do with your life, actually to change you in your very heart, I want to be clear, that offer is for you today. We'd love to talk to you more about that, uh, if you'd like, at the end of the meeting today. I guess the question, though, for those of us who have kind of been taken out of the world, so to speak, who are in the world but not of the world, who live for God in a world that is against God, who have already become Christians, the question for us, though, is this. How now do we live in such a world? Paul and Silas act in this passage as something of a case in point, I think. So let's see if we can learn something from their example. Let's go back to the passage and pick it up in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Remember, they're in prison at this time. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, 
Don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. So as we've seen, the environment around these guys was violent and aggressive. There was loads of seizing and dragging and flogging and beating and all that stuff. In that sort of environment, how do Paul and Silas respond? They act with a totally opposite spirit. First of all, after all the ill treatment and injustice, the first thing we see them in prison, they're singing. Okay, That's notable on its own. It's, everyone hears what they're doing. What's going on? Why are those guys singing? That's different. But it doesn't stop there. After the earthquake, which we'll come back to, believe me, that's quite an important part of the story. We'll come to that in a minute. But after the earthquake, the jailer pulls out his sword to kill himself. The, the, the idea being he's been given a charge of the prisoners. He sees the earthquakes happen. He assumes, well, they're going to escape. And uh, that bodes badly for me. They're not going to take an earthquake as an excuse. That's how things worked in those days. So he goes to kill himself. And um, what, do, what does uh, Paul do? Well, he actually acts in completely an opposite way to everyone else has. Whereas everyone else has been acting on, intent on causing harm, Paul acts to prevent harm. In verse 19, put your sword away. Don't harm yourself. It reminds me very much of when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember that story? I know some of you will know it. Judas leads the soldiers to arrest Jesus. And Peter, Jesus' disciple, he pulls out his sword to fight. And Jesus responded exactly the same as Paul does here. Put your sword away, Peter. In John 18, verse 10. Jesus responded to violence and hostility with peace. And he encouraged his disciples to do the same. Paul has caught something of that here, I think. Everyone else is for conflict. Paul and Silas promote peace. Everyone else is for violence. They show compassion. Everyone else is after their own ends. Paul and Silas act potentially at their own expense for the good of another. Just imagine for a second that you're in a prison for a crime you didn't do with no idea whether you'll ever be let out. There's no Geneva Convention involved here. And imagine that setting. You're handed the perfect opportunity for escape. Would you really care about someone who was kind of one of the baddies, one of the people who put you in there, the guy who put you in stocks in the first place? Would you care enough about him to risk your escape to, hurt, to, to, to help him? That's what these guys do. Everyone else is for retribution, but Paul and Silas show forgiveness. Everyone else repays good with evil. Remember, these guys were just helping a girl. They responded with this evil. No, what do they do? They, they repay evil with good. And look at the effect that it has here in this passage. As, as the men of violence had so changed the mood in verse 19 by acting in violence, so these men of peace, by acting in peace, bring peace to their environment. The jailer, who was fastening their feet in stocks in verse 24, what's he doing in verse 33? He's washing their wounds. Instead of the fear and aggression that reigned before, what's the resulting mood? Verse 34, he was filled with joy and of course a man and his whole family literally find peace with god the jailer and his family believe in jesus and are baptized it's an incredible turnaround 
Jesus said this, blessed are the peacemakers. It's a verse that many of us would know, and it would be kind of a slogan that we get, blessed are the peacemakers, we know that. But that verse has got to be more than a slogan for us. It's, verses like that need to be indented on our hearts. Because as we go into a world of violence, treachery, and injustice, we've got to understand that is always our calling. The world around you may want to tear down. We're called to build up. The world around you might want to complain and moan. We're called to be abounding in thanksgiving. That's what Paul says in Colossians. The world around you might want to aggressively assert their opinions. Paul tells us in Galatians, sorry, in Colossians, again, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. I want to apply specifically for, for those of you who use social media here. I guess a few years ago to apply something to social media use would be a little niche. But it's not now. It's the world we live in. Actually, social media is interesting in this context. And I, I wonder if social media is, is one of those kind of lid openers <laughs> like we see here. It's a, it's a lifting the lid opportunity. Just imagine an, an alien species came in contact with the world, but the only access they had to humans was through social media. I wonder, wonder what they'd make of us. Actually, I think a lot of the time, social media uses, it doesn't show us in the best light. This is like lifting a lid again on the human race. It's not just kind of trolls and people like that, you know. It's not just them. Actually, it's a lot of the way it's used. People aggrandizing themselves. People very forcefully and insensitively pushing forward their opinions. How would to act in that sort of way? We'd act in a completely different spirit. Let your tweets always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Let your Facebook status always be gracious, seasoned with salt. We have to live with a different spirit. And you know what? It's easy to say, but it's incredibly hard to do. Maybe one of the most difficult things of all things. When the prevailing mood is one thing and you're called to do another, that is incredibly hard. And to do it, actually... We've got to fall back on God's grace. We've got to ask him daily for his help and for his spirit to keep changing us so that we model the, the peace of the kingdom of God, not the aggression and violence of this world. We've got to. How to finish, there is one thing in this passage that I think can help us practically in this regard. and It's quite a surprising thing, actually. I've talked about two groups that are present in this passage and their different responses. Well, there's another actor who, who is, intervenes here as well. But the two groups you looked at is the Philippian mob on one hand, the, the angry crowd, the impatient authorities, the sword-wielding jailer pre-conversion. Okay? And those guys respond in violence, don't they? On the other hand, you've got Paul and Silas who reply to violence with peace and compassion. But there is another actor here, and he's got... Not named in the passage, but he clearly intervenes. And he intervenes in this earthquake. Verse 26. Suddenly, there was an earthquake, and the foundations of the prison were shaken. Actually, look back at that verse. I've missed out a word there. What word have I missed out? Well, you're right. Violent. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake. Wow, that's interesting. God, it turns out, is the most violent character in this whole story. Let's think about that for a second. His action here, the mobs are doing all sorts of things, but his action rips to pieces probably the most fortified building in the whole of Philippi. That's how God acts in this passage. Now listen, I'm not going to have time to pull 
all of the strands I'm about to pull apart together for you. And I imagine that this to whole topic will throw up questions for many of you. But it's very, very important that we are reminded of this stuff. The God of the Bible is a God of love, very, very clearly. He's a God who's patient and merciful with his creation. It's all over the Bible. But also, there's another facet of his character that is all over the Bible. He's a God of judgment and justice, and he won't tolerate human wickedness, and he tends not to look on passively while evil is done. All through the Bible, then, God intervenes to show extravagant mercy but he also intervenes to punish evil, and often his interventions are violent. So, back to the beginning. He floods the earth. Violent. But he rescues Noah and his family. Mercy. He destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. He rains fire down from heaven on them. Violent. But he saves Lot. Mercy. He frees his people from slavery in Egypt. Mercy. But he destroys the entire Egyptian army in the process. Violence. He calls Israel to himself and calls them his own. Mercy, great mercy. But he exiles them to Babylon for their persistent idolatry, violent intervention. We've seen in Acts as well. Earlier in Acts, he, he heals the lame beggar through Peter and John. Great act of mercy. And just a couple of chapters later, he strikes down Ananias and Sapphira in cold blood for their duplicity violent intervention and we could go on and on and listen i know this throws up questions for us I, I i hope it does about how the two sides of god's character interacts but while it does throw up those questions those questions are valid and we need to ask and wrestle with those questions we've got to recognize this on the surface this is the bottom line here this is the god of the bible and we cannot just choose the half of him we like you might ask why bring this up here? Well, the reason is this. I think a lot of time, the time we view this other side to God's character, call it the other side because it's, it's the bit we don't sing about very much, isn't it? We, we sing a lot about the mercy and the grace and the love. We don't sing about this other side so much. It's, and I think we often see this justice and judgment side as a problem. It's, like, it's the bit of Christianity we wish wasn't really there. However, you've got to notice that in this passage, it isn't a problem at all. Actually, I'll go further than that. I think that it's the other side of God's character here is the thing that enables Paul and Silas to act as they do. What do I mean by that? Well, let's think about this. You've got to understand in this passage, genuine wrongdoing is done here. Maybe stories in the Bible like this, and we think, ah, oh, yeah, well, of course Paul and Silas responded like that because you know what, they're Paul and Silas, they're Bible characters, aren't they? And we know how it all ends out, so it's not too bad that they got thrown in prison for helping a lady and beaten up in the process now it is bad nowadays if something like this happened we'd call it a gross violation of human rights we would call for something to be done this is awful what is done to these guys in this passage and in response to awful injustices then and now something must be done in response to the rampant wickedness of the world it is not possible for the only answer to be kindness and compassion might sound like a strange thing to say but that would be wrong Something must be done. But listen, something will be done. In Acts 16, we see that when people seized and dragged and beat and flogged God's people and pushed their weight around, God responded with a far more impressive show of strength. He shook the entire foundations of the whole city. One day, 
in a sense, he's going to do the same to the whole world. And in one respect, he will respond to our world of violence with the violence that it deserves. Yes, of course, he, he offers his hand of mercy to all. And yes, he longs for people to take that hand. But ultimately, he will judge the world and he won't pull any punches. And because of God's willingness to judge and respond to violence with the, necessary, with the violence necessary to sort it out, it means something incredibly important for us. It means this. It means we don't have to act like that. Listen to how Paul later sums up this teaching. I'll show you what I mean if you're not following. Because I think this passage ties together all the strands we've seen today. The passage I'm referring to is in, in Romans 12, 17 to 21. I want to read it to you. Okay, and see the similarities as we go through this. Romans 12, 17 to 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. We've seen Paul living that out in this passage. Okay? Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. Well, that sounds nice, doesn't it? Of course, that's the kind of thing Paul would say. It's a good Christian thing to do. We don't take revenge, do we? Look at the reasoning he gives, though. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If this uh, talk had a title, I think that's what it would be. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There may well be some of you here who are living in situations of violence right now. Perhaps it's just in the environment you find yourself in. Perhaps you find yourself the victim either of violent actions or violent words. For others, you might just have had enough of living in a world that seems to continually perpetrate evil things. Now, I've talked to a, a number of people in the church recently whose, whose jobs are bringing them very close to some of the darkest parts of our city. And those things they've seen are making them angry. In some cases, making them sick to the stomach. That might be you. I know other guys in the church who see the effects of global systems of selfishness and greed that maybe are a little bit further off. We're affecting thousands and tens of thousands of people. And those things pain you. It pains you to see the, the human misery that is caused by global decision makers in different spheres acting incredibly selfishly. And you know what? I understand that it's not good enough for those of you in those situations just to say, forgive. Let it go. Just smile and be kind to them. That's what we do as Christians. It's not good enough. No, those things that you're concerned about, or those things that are affecting you, are bad. And in an ultimate sense, we can't just wish them away. They need to be dealt with. But here's the deal. They will be dealt with. There is a God who will call everyone to judgment. And however scary or untouchable the perpetrators of evil in the world may seem to us, they're definitely not too big for God. And now listen, when we hear something like that, we're not meant to rub our hands together and cackle at this prospect. Now, such realities must be treated with awe and humility, mainly because we all deserve the same fate, you know. But at the same time, we're also not meant to brush such rea realities under the carpet and close our eyes to them. Because actually, when we recognize that there is one who will deal with evil appropriately and unjustly, 
It frees us to live with the different spirit I've talked about today. Frees us to forgive, to show kindness, to make peace, to repay evil with good. Guys, we, we don't need to take the responsibility on ourselves to pay people back for what they've done to us or to others. You know why? Because there's one who will do such a thing. And he will do it well, and he will do it right. So let's conclude and wrap up by seeing how the story uh, finishes. I think this gives us a, a wonderful conclusion to all I've been talking about today. Pick it up in verse 35. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release these men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers returned and reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. It's right to be alarmed. It's completely illegal to do any of this stuff to Roman citizens. These guys just made a serious blunder, basically. Verse 39, they came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. I want you to notice to finish that despite all of their kindness and compassion, Paul and Silas are no pushovers, not even slightly. Although the actions in this passage speak of forgiveness and speak of love, these guys are more than prepared to call out what's wrong and they do what they need to do here to complete the job God has called them to do here what you find them uh, they're told to go <laughs> but they go no actually I'm not we're not going anywhere yet we're going to finish what we meant to do they they leave behind a strong community of believers who can form actually the heart of the Philippian church I think for some of you you may struggle with this thought that our role in the world we live in is purely kind of passive our roles to forgive, our roles to show kindness, our roles to act as peacemakers. Surely you're thinking, but surely we should do something. Surely we have a, 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 a positive role to play in the sense that we should be proactive in these things. Well, you know what? You might need to do something. God may call you to act wisely and play a part in standing up against the evil and violence you see in the world, just as Paul and Silas called out the injustice they saw even in this passage. But as we see from Paul and Silas... That may be where you end up, but it's not where you start. Our first priority is to ensure that we foster a different spirit to the one in this world. We must refuse to let our environment dictate how we speak and act, but let the Holy Spirit shape us to always act in love, always act in respect, always act in grace and leave judgment and vengeance up to God. Who knows where God will lead us from there? But you know what? We don't start from anywhere else.